Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. My name is Joe Devine and today I was delighted to be joined by Uri Levy. Uri is the editor of Babagol, a football website which focuses predominantly on Middle Eastern football, but also other football in Asia, South America, Africa, international really, but with, I would say, a focus on the intersection of uh, football, politics and culture and society. Uri is a fantastic writer and a lot of the stuff they publish on, on Babacol is, uh, is also very, very interesting. And uh, Uri has written for a number of other um, publishing outlets as well. In this episode, we talk about football in Israel and Palestine. The documentary that we uh, talk about halfway through the podcast is called Forever Pure. You don't need to have seen it to listen to this. I think you'll still be able to follow the conversation. But if you want to, it's really worth watching. You can find it available for streaming online. Um, and also The Guardian have a 10-minute short film version of it, which is freely available, I believe. So it's, um, it's worth watching if you haven't seen it. We also talk about uh, Qatar and the World Cup. And we talk about Uri's journey last year to three international tournaments in the space of 12 months, which is very impressive. Um, I was delighted to talk to Uri. He's a really interesting guy. And I thank him very much for appearing. This episode of the podcast is supported by The Athletic. You can get a seven-day free trial and 50% off an annual subscription by visiting theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. That works out to be about 8p a day £2.50 a month. So thank you for downloading, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, I'm joined by Uri Levy. Hey man, how are you doing? I'm doing great, so happy to be in the famous T4 football podcast <laughs> finally hey man well uh, thanks so much for coming I, I really appreciate it thanks um, for inviting we've done some a little bit of work together before between Babagol you're the editor of the football site Babagol and some stuff on, on, the, on the TIFO channel um, but for our listeners who aren't familiar with your work will you just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do yeah I'm uh, Uri Levy as you said I'm the founder and editor-in-chief of Babagol, which is an international football website that focuses on Middle East, Latin America, Africa, Asia, always with the implications of politics and society and history and economy and whatever we can learn from the game, which is taking place off the field, maybe, mm. and in the terraces or in the boardrooms and, and stuff like this, or between players. And myself, in the past almost seven years, I've been an independent journalist specializing on Middle Eastern football. Um, I was writing for many, many publications throughout these years, from Arab Jdid in Qatar and here in the New Arab in the UK, uh, the Jerusalem Post, the Aretz, uh, and also for Babagol, of course. Uh, it's running for five years now. We are a team of 13 writers. Each one has his own niche, his own expertise, and it's going good. You mm -hmm. know, we, we are working in football. We are fortunate eventually. Yeah, right? Yeah. You're from Jerusalem? Born and raised. How did you get started in football journalism? Ooh, um, it's a long story, but I think it's a, it's a one with a positive, uh, a positive uh, lesson for all the listeners. I hope so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After first year in the university doing my BA, in Middle Eastern Studies and Latin American Studies. Okay. I realized that 
I cannot go on with this uh, degree because I can't connect it to nothing that really interests me and nothing that I really have passion to. What, what sort of thing do you study on a course like that? Um, you study a lot of history of the right. Middle East and history of uh, Palestinian people and history of Iran, history of Saudi Arabia. And I like it. I like history since I was a child. I loved it. And I, I speak Arabic, so, you know, I had some easy points on the, on the language uh, courses. But mm. I looked for a way to make it matter in a way. And I looked also for my uh, advantage in the, the beginning in the Israeli media market. And I saw that nobody speaks about the football scenarios that taking place literally 15 minutes drive sometimes yeah. from center of Jerusalem. Um, so we start offering different professors ideas for, for seminars, for small uh, papers, for essays that connects football politics, but in Palestine, in Egypt, in Jordan, um, It took time, but eventually there were a couple of uh, brave professors who told me, okay, you, you are onto something, go on with it. And I started going places, you know, uh, all over the West Bank, Jordan, uh, later on Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, literally covering Middle Eastern football. Uh, of course, with great uh, inspiration from one very important author and journalist, uh, James Montague. Mm -hmm. That I think uh, most of us in our generation that now create content about football read his uh, book about uh, when Friday when Friday yeah. comes about uh, football in our region. This and is an amazing book. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a must read. Um, and of course, thirty uh, one nil, and the list goes on. But uh, I I looked at what James is doing, and I said, okay. James is uh, opening eyes in the UK and the wide world, but basically in Israel and in Palestine and the West Bank, nobody is sitting on the fence and telling the stories of the people that go in on the other direction, right. the other side. And I think that, you know, in, especially in the modern world, speaking about the other and speaking about the unknown is a privilege. We, we have the right to do it. We have the option. It's very easy with the internet. So I just started to covering it. Uh, at the beginning, the reactions were a little bit, you know, uh, scared and in intimidated. But uh, mm. with time, it caught up. Baba Golan went big. And uh, What sort of things did you do when you were first starting out? Like, what, were you just covering local football matches? Or were you talking about, as you say, as, as the football <clears throat> intersected with politics and the community? Or how did you go about it? Do you remember some of the earlier stories? Yeah, the earlier stories, I think it was, it was very funny. Uh, we used to have in Baba Gol a, a weekly column of uh, our first reporter, basically, Osi Medina, who is also uh, one of the... Uh, responsible for a lot of things in Babagol. Uh, he used to pick every week three matches from all over the world. Right. And, you know, the alternative matches. Yeah. American Samoa, Swaziland, yeah. and uh, Guatemala. And it was one Friday. They told me, look, there is a derby in Hebron. Yeah. And I said, oh my God, you know, <laughs> uh, I must know more about it. And then I started to search the internet for people who write about Palestinian football. Literally, first time using my Arabic skills um, in terms of football. And then I just discovered a whole new world. I created many connections. And I interviewed someone for, for information about the match. And he told me that there is an Italian coach 
who works as one of the coaches of, of, of the teams in, in Hebron. So I interviewed this guy, I went to Hebron. And uh, my grandfather originally is also from Hebron. And uh, for me, it was like a closure of mm. many circles because it was the first time for me to be in this city uh, and to meet people and uh, to understand many things about my grandfather as well. Mm. And um, basically, I did this interview with him, an interview that became very viral, both in Israel and Palestine. And then things started moving and many, I got many invitations to come and write about people throughout the, all over the West Bank, from right. Janine in the north to Daria and, uh, and all the southern region. Um, and also Israeli media outlets started to get interested in what's going on there. And then things became, you know, the beginning people told me, what are you doing? What are, why are you giving stage to terrorists? Or right. why are you telling the stories to these colonizers and stuff like this? But later on, people understand that this is a great way to learn about culture, mm. to learn what's happening in the same land, because practically it's the same place. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know, I think, I think with the momentum was, uh, was a good idea. You know, I, I got, got to spend a few days, very cool days in Daria, which is like a 50,000 people village in south, south, uh, southern side of Hebron. And all you have there is uh, improvised aluminum factories, on the right. side of the road and a football team. Yeah. A football team that for years playing only uh, the village uh, the village players like at least 8 of the of the lineup players must be uh, homegrown players of the team and the village and there are huge posters in the main roads of the players and we are talking about something that is in between uh, league 1 to division 2 level, you know. Yeah. It's uh, something very basic. Mm-hmm. But the passion is amazing. Right. And the derby matches there are something that the, one of the most crazy atmospheres in football game that I ever witnessed. Mm. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I suppose it's interesting, you know, when you're in a, um, in a region of the world which has a great, con- I mean, internationally renowned conflicts, you would say, and there are huge divisions between groups of people. You hinted at it there that football might be a... Um, a force in a way that can be used uh, for unity between different peoples. Do you recognize that in Israel and in Palestine and the, in the West Bank? Because also there are stories to the to the counter as well, aren't there? I mean, I'm thinking we worked, this was with James Montague actually, he, for a TIFO video, he wrote the story about Mahmoud Wadi, who is a um, Palestinian football striker who was trapped in Gaza for a, a year when he was supposed to be returning to the, to the West Bank to play football. So there are stories of division as well. Is your impression generally that, that football can act as a sort of uniting force or do you fear that tribalism that comes into football as well, tribalism which is a big part of, of football, your fan group against the opposition's fan group, for example, is also gets in, gets in the way of that idea of, of unity. Yeah. It's quite romantic, isn't it? But yeah, yeah, yeah. On the grassroots level of it, what's actually happening? That, that's, you know, like everything, you have stories that shows, yeah, that can prevail on and put un, un, unity on the spotlight. And of course, uh, stories like Mahmoud's story, uh, that, you know, by the way, I also interviewed him for, for articles that were published both in Arabic and Hebrew yeah. about the same story. And, you know, we are in a very good relationship. So I think that 
Yeah, it's it's not a fair situation. And I, I, I thought, I imagined that we will get to this spot maybe later in the conversation. But <laughs> Sorry, I'm probably over with it. I will say it. Uh, we, are, we are in a problem, you know, and our problem is definitely not Mahmoud's fault and it's definitely not mine fault or Babagul's fault. Sure, yeah. And uh, our, our biggest problem is that still in 2019, We live in a world where conflicts, as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, is a crazy money machine. Someone makes money out of the situation. So, uh, and peace at the moment doesn't seem profitable to any of the uh, people in power from both sides. So basically, we are paying the price for something that could be maybe the most amazing place in the world and the most... Vi- vibrant and, and kicking football scenario that I can even think of mm. because everything is so rooted with politics and identity and society that I think, you know, we all the time playing this imaginary game between us about uh, a United League of uh, all of the Jewish and Muslim uh, team and stuff. But I think, you know, What I do, you know, I decided in one point after a lot of people uh, tried to or criticize my work or said that I'm uh, giving stage to terrorists or I'm uh, uh, cooperating with the, with the occupation. You cannot make, in this situation, you cannot make everybody happy no, with no, what you do. You always, there will be. So I say, you know, I have this theory of circles, okay? I decide to tell Mahmoud's story or I decide to tell the story of uh, Shabab Daria and to open eyes to one person who reads it mm-hmm. or watch it in a, in a TIFO video, for mm-hmm. example, if we decide to cooperate. Okay, so suddenly this person sees this conflict or people who are actually living and working and being active within the conflict in a different way. Mm-hmm. So I widen the circle in a way because my circle, in my circle, for me, it's not important if you are uh, an extreme, uh, an ultra fan of uh, La Familia, uh, the group, uh, the right-wing uh, group uh, of fans of Beta Jerusalem, or, you know, um, people from, uh, fans of uh, Shabab Rafah from, from Gaza. It's not important. If you are a football person, for me, first of all, I can have a, sp- a talk with you and I can count on you yeah. because you speak my language. You yeah. know, I speak Hebrew, I speak Arabic, I speak French, I speak Spanish, I speak English. But first of all, I speak football. Mm. And when I use this circle of football and I open eyes for even one person from each article, I did my own thing. I think I, it, you know, it's, uh, I'm not uh, imposing or forcing my agenda or my, my political view on no one. I'm just telling them, hey, it's here. You mm. can look, you can taste, you can have a thought on it. And if it's not good for you, it's okay. But you cannot neglect that it's mm. here. Yeah. And this is the first step. I think uh, our biggest challenge, I think, football people in this land is uh, really... To open eyes. I'm not saying who's right and who's wrong. I think it's, uh, it's clear that there is uh, right and wrong in both sides. Uh, I think that uh, the strong must have, must make some great, great, great steps in favor for the weak. And I think the weak must also understand that there is a coexistence must be 
protected in a way, but uh, you know this is me. Uh, the rest is rest for the for the for the football to help us to tell the story. I think in some ways it's easier for someone like. Man, I was cl- I was clear, yeah? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you worry that you won't clear? Yeah, maybe I. You know, I, I filled it with. Uh, it's no judgment from me, man. I'm just. Uh, I, I think it's a really interesting topic of conversation. I agree also that there is that there is no that it is very difficult to. Uh, it's a very complex situation to, to, to talk about it in a way that is black and white is not going to do either side or anyone any, any justice and far be it from me someone who is not at all an expert in your re- the region of your, uh, your region of the world or, or these sorts of stories to, to really question you I'm just interested in it um, and I think you know, I'm interested in it from the angle of what football journalism specifically can do and so what I was going to say was that I think it's easier for someone like James Montague who is uh, from the UK, who's, you know, writing for an international audience, but you would probably fairly say predominantly for a Western audience. Um, when Friday comes, for example, a story of uh, football in various different countries in, in the Middle East, it's easier for him in a way to use football as a tool to humanise people who are often othered in, in the West, you know, particularly people from the Middle East. It's very common to hear um, stories that other people who, who live there, and when you talk about their lives in the context of football, it creates a very, it's a, it's a very easy way to humanise them because people totally relate to it. As you said, you know, football is a kind of a universal language in a way. And that's why when you think about stories like um, Mahmoud Wadi's story, which I might ask you to, to, to retell in a, in a moment for listeners mm-hmm. who haven't seen that video. Sure. When you think about stories like, like his, it suddenly, you know... It obviously it highlights some of the the horrors of the conflict or the occupation or whatever you want to call it, but it also tells a very personal story which people can very easily empathise with because they suddenly recognise this young man and his lifestyle as you know ostensibly similar to their own, and I think that's why it's easier for James because he's he's his audience is predominantly in the West. For you, uh, presumably you're writing for uh, obviously a Western audience, but also an audience in Jerusalem and Israel and Palestine and the Middle East. People are a lot closer to some of these problems. I imagine it would be similar to trying to write something, um, you know, that, that appeared to be objective about Brexit in the UK at the moment, where you're just going to, you know, it's, it's a lot harder, let's say. But w- would, you, would you tell listeners about Mahmoud Wadi and a little bit about his story? Yeah, for example, uh, Mahmoud's, Mahmoud's story is... Uh you know, it's a quite a, I, I like to call it like a, an impossible Cinderella story, but uh, it's really it's really showing a part of the reality that we live in. Mahmoud uh, was uh, one of the greatest talents in Palestinian football in the past years. In the past decade, his name is already when he was uh, 18, he was familiar with the community of uh, football in Palestine, but also in Jordan and in Egypt because Gaza is like a small strip of 45 kilometers or nine kilometers on the south of Israel, between Israel and Egypt. Mm. And how many people? One, two million, is it? 2.5. 2.5 million. Maybe more. In I such a small space. Yeah. No, no, it's just, it's just good for... Again, no, no. It's just, it's just good for people to kind of have an understanding of what this it This is horrible, man. Yeah. Speaking as someone who's never been there. It's the most crowded, crowded place in the world. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. And he was from Khan Yunus, which uh, is one of the most uh, combative and uh, uh, I would say um, familiar and famous uh, neighborhoods of uh, of Gaza 
for the for the struggle and for the fight for uh, uh, Palestinian liberation and when he he was very talented and in 2015 Jibril Adu which is the head of FA or head of Palestinian FA he renewed uh, a competition that was stopped I think in the 2001 or 2000 which called the Palestine Cup which was uh, it's basically a double header between the cup winners of Gaza and the cup winners of the West Bank to play one match in Gaza one match in the West Bank and the winner is the Palestine Cup winner that get the the ticket to play in Asian competition and mm-hmm. um, because Palestinian teams does not have the right to play in uh, Asian Champions League uh, from financial uh, Uh, condition and reasons so they play in the AFC Cup which is kind of some kind of the Europa League uh, of Asia um, so in 2015 it was the first time after 15 years that a team from Gaza Itihad Shujaia and uh, a team from the West Bank Ali Al Khalil from Hebron uh, will play each other and it was a very uh, first of all covered uh, event even in worldwide level there were New York Times and Washington Post and uh, BBC all the big outlets of the West came down to Gaza and the West Bank to cover this event it was a very interesting event uh, but it also allowed the team from the West Bank to have a bit of scouting in Gaza mm-hmm. and to find the whole uh, all of the different talents the hidden gems of, of Gaza and Mahmoud was one of them literally uh, hidden literally, right? yeah, yeah, yeah literally hidden and he joined back with Ali Khalim, Khalil uh, and traveled to the West Bank as he signed the contract there he made a terrific first season scoring six goals in the AFC Cup later on like in the season of 2015-2016 and he with Al-Ali they retained the Cup of the West Bank and came back a year later to Gaza To play again the Palestine Cup second year in a row you know starting to build a tradition uh, of this new competition all new competition of Palestinian football and when after the game which he played he was good and was he was basically the main figure in this, this event the cameras all the time went for him you know handsome 19 year old tall guy coming from one of the worst neighborhoods in Gaza, neighborhoods in Gaza mm. now star in the West Bank and for the national team. They call him the Tower, right? Yeah, yeah. El Burj. Right. Um, so after the game, he, when he was trying to go back with all of his team, uh, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, uh, you know, all this, um, decided to not approve his crossing from Gaza back to the West Bank. And... From different reasons, which I'm, I prefer not to go into this because it's really, I don't know for a fact. I heard the versions of many sides to this story. Uh, some say that, uh, like, of course, from the IDF part, that uh, Mahmoud's family, uh, two people from Mahmoud's family were involved in uh, terrorist activity. What is terrorist activity? Yeah. We let the other to decide, not uh, Joe and myself in the football uh, podcast. But um, yeah, it put him in a, in a troubled situation where he couldn't go, go back. And every day he went to the border, the, to the border crossing, trying to go back to Hebron to, to continue his career as a successful football player. But uh, this thing was serious. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time, 
And it's really matters of uh, sometimes or someone really stupid in charge or a bad handling of the bureaucracy. And I think it was a mix of both from, from the situation. Regardless, this is the, the fact that this guy who had a promising career found himself in a situation of months not being able to continue it. Mm. And he practiced alone on the beach uh, with his former team, Itihad Khan Yunus. And after, if I'm not wrong, seven months, seven and a half months, he finally got an offer mm. uh, from a Jordanian team. Mm-hmm. So from a Jordanian team, he doesn't literally need to go back through Israel. He can just wait for the Egyptian crossing to be open and then from Egypt to go to Jordan. Yeah. And this is what eventually happened. He waited another month to the Egyptian border crossing to open from Gaza and then he went to Jordan. Became, he finished the season as the runner-up for the top scorer there. And right now, he's a successful career in the Egyptian league with El Masri, mm. maybe the third biggest club in Egypt. Right. Uh, so it's an impossible Cinderella story that tells a lot about the occupation, tells a lot about uh, Gaza, yeah. tells a lot about uh, Israel and, uh, you know, football that, in the region. That's why I like the story, because, as I say, without even really having to get into the heavy politics or the details of it, Not only does it sort of tell you a little bit about what it might be like to live in this area of the world, be this person, be this religion, be this color, whatever it is, it also has a quite you know reasonably nice ending, so it's not super depressing um and he's playing for the international team as well now, right indeed. So that's nice, yeah. Okay. It is difficult to talk about that, right? Isn't it, Aaron? Uh, in English... I see, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I can see that at times you are uncomfortable a little bit talking about trying to find the right way of putting it. Presumably yeah, because... For fear of being criticized by one person or another, right? Exactly. But I'm also... I think I, I don't want to give our listeners something that won't be objective. Mm-hmm. Of course, I have my own opinion. Sure. But I want to give them the... The appetizers to go and watch the video, yeah. uh, read uh, James' uh, interview with him maybe, or I don't know, and, uh, and get their own taste about this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it's not comfortable? Yeah, not, not always it's comfortable. Uh, because again, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remain objective, to remain uh, neutral as I can, but at the same time interesting, because it's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. a, it's an unenviable position, I would say. It's a, it's a tough thing that you're uh, setting yourself out to do right yeah, now. Yeah, no, but I'm comfortable, man. Don't worry. This is never... Hello, little break-in proceedings here for me to tell you that this episode of the TIFO Football Podcast is brought to you by The Athletic, the best place to read about football online. Also, the best place to listen to stuff about football online. Hmm? I'm talking about podcasts, friends. I've got three to tell you about here. The first is The View from the Lane. Jack Pitbrook and Charlie Eccleshare are joined by a host of guests to bring you all the very best coverage from Inside Spurs. Tune in every week for big-name guests, breaking news, and the best insight you'll find on Tottenham Hotspur. Very exciting. The second, on the ball. Michael Bailey is joined by a host of guests to bring you all the latest insight from Norwich City every single week. Hear interviews from big names inside the club that you won't get anywhere else. And third, but certainly not least, is the Phil Hay Show. Phil Hay joins Dan Moylan to bring you expert insight into the goings-on at Ellen Road every single week, plus breaking news and big-name interviews, including 
the manager himself. Dun, dun, dun. The best news, folks, is that uh, these podcasts are free to listen to for all, which is fantastic. You can start listening straight away. Just search for those on your favorite podcast provider, Apple, whatever it is. You know you know best, but uh, they'll be available for you. However, if you want to supplement those listenings with fantastic readings, uh, you should visit theathletic.co.uk forward slash TIFO. There you'll get a seven-day free trial, so you can check it all out if you're not happy with it bugger off that's cool uh, i'm sure you will be happy with it though and therefore you will be delighted to hear that you get 50 percent off an annual subscription which works out at what i hope you all know by now it's eight p a day eight p a day eight p i should i should write a song about eight p a day in fact i might do that over christmas i've got some time the eight p a day song it's just eight p it's just eight p just eight English pence. It's just eight p. It's just eight p. Anyway, um, thanks for listening, and um, back to Uri now. Hey, listen, I watched. I was saying to you earlier, I watched um, the documentary. Um, I've momentarily forgotten what it's called. Forever pure. Forever pure. I watched Forever Pure this morning. You referenced uh, you referenced the team already, and the um, what is their fan group called? Already? La Familia. The La Familia. Yeah. yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that story? It's a fascinating documentary. Um, I don't know how much uh, you know of a real insight it is. Obviously, it's, the, it's it's all I know about this situation is having is having watched this film. Mm-hmm. Um, but will you tell listeners what the what the film yeah. is about and a little bit about? Yeah, it? yeah, for sure. So uh, Forever Pure is a movie about. Um, a very intriguing story about uh, Beitar Jerusalem, one of the most, maybe the most popular club in Israel. Are they the most popular? Mm, yeah, maybe now they are the second after Maccabi Tel Aviv, but they are a huge club, right. in of fandom. Lots of people from the government supported them, right? Uh, That's what the documentary says. Yes, in a way, but again... I, I I must I, I would put a large. Oh, do do like, correct me when I'm wrong. Yeah, no, no, it's yeah, yeah. it's true. But he said um, that Netanyahu was a sometime fan. True, true. Yeah, true. But many many poli- politicians from the right yeah. side of the map find themselves in a very interesting uh, uh, coincidence. Suddenly, uh, die-hard fans of Bita Jerusalem because Be- of the fan base, exactly, who are more likely, presumably, to vote for those politicians. True. Okay. And the documentary also said that a series of uh, uh, the, the mayors had been Beitar fans. True. Uh, yeah. Back in the back in the day, in this this story is uh, taking place in 2013, when uh, for the first time in history, uh, the president of the Beitar Jerusalem, Beitar Jerusalem, basically signed two Muslim players. Now, for the listeners who are not familiar with this club. Um, Beitar never, ever <laughs> signed an Arab Muslim player. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an issue that is uh, probably one of the ugliest, I think, that there, there are in world football. Especially when now I will explain the origin of this, of this club. People will understand how twisted and how, and how dangerous and it could be to mark someone is pure evil for many years. Mm-hmm. And when I watched Forever Pure, that tells the story of the two Chechen Muslim players who signed in Metar in 2013, and 
basically this movie enjoy maybe the best football materials to tell a story yeah full full access to a, every event and that this team was through in this season well they were lucky when I think the documentary team were just there for the season and this uh, event occurred just sort of coincidentally yeah and they, they had filming. full access agreement right it was you know for people who do the uh, documentaries and stuff it's it doesn't you know, happen yeah yeah it takes many stars combined to make this kind of movie um But um, in this movie, it was very, eventually after also the documentary, you also edi- editing it. And I remember the day it was released. And as a Jerusalem born and raised, and we just uh, spoke now about uh, Palestinian football and someone who I can define myself as a great ambassador of both uh, f- football scenarios. both Palestinian and Israeli, mm-hmm. both scenarios I, who I endorse, both in my, my work and also in, uh, in Babagol. I give a huge stage for, for both uh, scenes, but uh, I felt, and I also I saw our inbox in Babagol, uh, back at the time that Facebook were still a, a live uh, platform, we got so many, maybe hundreds, if not more than thousand inbox The release the, the Guardian made like a, a small uh, yeah. teaser for the movie like 10 minute long It, film right yeah yeah they asked me are all people in Jerusalem hate Arabs mm-hmm. you know <laughs> man we are working hard here to open people's eyes and to speak about football yeah and then this 10 minute teaser by the Guardian first of all coming much more viral from any story that we told you Yeah. about Israeli football or Palestinian football. And most of all, showing people of Jerusalem who are a big chunk of Baba Gol crew is racist. Yeah. And you know, for me, it was, it, I felt very bad about it. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the thing And to say as well is that the film, it doesn't, the film I don't think suggests that everyone from Jerusalem is racist. But what it does do is focus on uh, very much on for one you and group for of, me it doesn't but for the you know the simple football fan it also shows at the end there are there is an example and one fan seems to be the sort of face of this movement who I think uh, a group of fans split off and formed another club true. Uh, after afterwards true. Uh, you know to have a non-racist club true whatever but it it does it does seem to show particularly I mean essentially the the, the story is uh, as Uri as said that that two uh, uh, Muslim Chechen players were signed by the club for, for slightly unclear reasons by uh, Arkady the Arkady Gaidamak uh, who was the father Gaidamak, of, right. uh, of uh, Sasha Gaidamak who was the owner of Portsmouth back in the day right okay there you, you go you remember Portsmouth with, uh, when they bought Canoe and stuff yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And obviously the, the fans who support a club that's never signed a, a Muslim player before, an Arab player before, some of, some of them are very upset about it because they're racists. Um, and it seems for a while that it's a kind of, it's a sort of vocal minority of the support. But uh, the part way through the season, um, La Familia, who are these, I guess the ultra group for the, the, the team, they decided to boycott supporting mm-hmm. um, And the stadiums were essentially empty. I mean, and so, so it was more than boycotting, supporting it. They, they right. decided to burn down the club, the right. clubhouse. <laughs> they, they burned, the burned club down the clubhouse. With house. all the lovely memorabilia in the little museum. Exactly. With all this, yeah. So I, I must... But it show, essentially it showed that they, had, that they had 
I suppose, a greater influence over other supporters or greater support for their beliefs than I think people in the even in the club thought was was true. And I that obviously made the situation much more serious because it wasn't just a small group of ultras who were boycotting. The stadiums were, yeah, essentially empty for a number of games. And that does, when you watch the film, it does give the impression that all of those supporters are racists, which obviously is not true of everyone who, who lives in Jerusalem. But you are right that it is, it's one of the, even for myself, it's, it's one of the kind of few articles that I've, that I've seen of this area of the world, particularly with football. So it does, it does paint it in a certain light. But do go, go on. Yeah, yeah. First of all, you, you, remember, you remember how we started this podcast. We talked about the profit that people make from the conflict. Yeah. So this story was like a huge birthday cake for all the, even, I'm not talking about high level, high caliber politician. Uh-huh. I'm talking about people who never heard their name. Yeah. And they're starting like to use it and to, f- to you, you know, fueling the story and using the flames, make them larger and larger to make the, the, themselves a name of a right wing politician a notable right-wing politician supporting the extreme fans who mm-hmm. basically even the club didn't want yeah. any connection with them anymore. Yeah. And back in the days, I think, no, it was two years later that the Manuel Veth, who is the founder, not founder, he's the editor-in-chief of Football Grad, asked me to write a piece on, on, on the story as an answer mm-hmm. to Forever Pure to give... Uh, the local view on the story. Yeah. And we did it, Yossi and me. And uh, I was very happy asked because um, I, I was I was tempting with this idea for a while. And uh, I said, okay, we will go for it. Because people, and I think the 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 ethos and the story of Betar Jerusalem, and I'm not a fan of this club whatsoever, is not being understood in the movie in the right way. Um Beitar was, until the end of the 70s, a non, non-club. It, was, it wasn't even the biggest club in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. It was the club that the, his, its supporters were the Jews coming from the Middle East and basically poor people, people who hadn't enjoyed any representation in the government or in the parliament, who felt very uh, depressed and the uh, serious financial and uh, employment unrest. Was it kind of anti-establishment then? You can say, yeah. Okay. I think in the movie, one of one of them is, uh, one of the politicians there who I interviewed in the movie is saying this. I think it's Avigdor Lieberman. Yeah. Back then he was the foreign affairs minister, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, that Beitar was anti-establishment team. P- team of, uh, if I need to make an equivalent for the... Uh, UK listeners might be some kind between Burnley, right? Okay, to Athletic Bilbao, right? Sure, maybe only in Berlin. Yeah, maybe some kind. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And um, and you know, things in Israel changed politically in '77. For the first time ever, there were a right-wing government who took a place who back until then was almost 100% socialist mm-hmm. in the way it's functioning into capitalism and much more clear uh, nationalistic view. And the, the success of this club came hand in hand with this shift in the Israeli regime, but also in the, in the society. Mm-hmm. 
things change. And uh, basically, we told the story of Beitar from trying to understand how um, there was like a feeling of uh, like this group of people who were unwanted had the place where they were more than wanted, where they were dominant. And then when it combined with football success, they became the most popular club in the country. Because everybody wanted to identify with this. It was crazy. It will be maybe a little bit crazy to say, but this also impossible and weird Cinderella story mm. of people who were not the mainstream, were mm -hmm. outside of the mainstream, became very mainstream. And, and eventually brought also very dire, dark views to the mainstream of Israeli football. Mm -hmm. And for many, many years, the media pointed Beitar Jerusalem fans, regardless which group, La Familia or not, and said, you are racist, you are crazy, you are ugly, and you are bad. Even in years that it wasn't such a bonton. Okay, there were racist fans, okay? But if we go now to Italy, every team... There is a group of racist fans. If mm -hmm. you go to France, the same. UK. Uh, uh, UK, exactly. Chelsea, whatever. Um, and you know, for years, they marked only them. Even if there were incidents with other teams, it didn't make the same headlines. Mm -hmm. But when the, the terms racism and Beitar Jerusalem came together, you know, this is where the media made money. Mm -hmm. It was viral content right? from the 90s. So I think what we've seen in the movie is also, and it's something that I think it's not being discussed in the movie enough, is the role of the media in shaping the image mm -hmm. of a, a Beitar Jerusalem fan and of Beitar Jerusalem as a whole. Mm -hmm. without neglecting the past, without neglecting the, the, the club identity and ethos, and ethos. But of course, you need to show the full picture. So the, yeah. uh, when, when Joe watch, uh, watch this movie, he can <laughs> say, okay, I know that this is, this is the case, but yeah. I know there were several reasons for in so the background. So you want more historical context. Always, man. Historical, okay. yeah. historical context is a must. Someone might listen to that and say, well, the club signed two... Muslim players and then all the supporters stopped coming to games and some of them burnt down part of the club what is there to defend of course there are historical uh, reasons and there is a context for these things happening but at the same time that's oh. true of everything and where do you draw the line no no totally I, I, I hope it's not the, <laughs> I'm not that person no 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 someone, yeah. someone, someone uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not you're not getting me wrong for supporting no, yeah, uh, yeah, these yeah. kind of things not at all well the point the point I'm making is that it is difficult to be nuanced when it comes to conversations like this because there is always going to be someone who's going to take offence to what you say and be very critical again another reason why I don't envy the position that you're in and the job that you're trying to do attempting to be objective about um, a story like this or Mahmoud Wadi or whatever it is, that's, that's tough. It, it is. Yeah. But I feel very comfortable because, again, I hope, uh, I hope uh, you know, it, it was clear. I come, first of all, for football. And if we speak about football, we have a common language. Mm -hmm. So speak about problems. Okay, man, I grew up in Jerusalem where buses were bombing. And nobody cannot tell me that I'm not from there. I'm from there. So it's, 
easier and I think it's it's my duty as someone from this place a city who is a mix of everything it's not an easy place to grow up in and it's not an easy place to live in but it's my duty and my responsibility to spread the word of first of all in this city everybody are equal if they mm-hmm. play football mm-hmm. and it means also thinking uh, trying a little bit of complex thinking you know nowadays the common fan has much more input than when we me and you when we were kids for example and we were basically getting our football info and data from the newspapers yeah reading this short 200 word boxes about what happened mm-hmm. last night because we didn't watch the game because we went to sleep early we had teletext did you have that in Israel? Yeah, no, no. no do you know what teletext is <laughs> I, I remember yeah. Yeah, yeah that was how i used to sit in the living room uh, watching teletext for football scores that weren't on the TV. And whenever my dad left the room, I'd shout and pretend that the score had changed and he'd come back and he grew, really? he grew tired of that pretty quickly. Around, yeah. He didn't really like that. that <laughs> Will you tell me more about yourself then? You just mentioned growing, growing up in Jerusalem. This day. What, what, what was it like growing up in Jerusalem? What's the football scene like as a, as a, as a kid mm. growing up in Jerusalem? Yeah, so basically I... The football, the football scene in Jerusalem when I grew up, uh, I, I was when the end of the of the eighties, uh, grew up in the nineties. The uh, unfortunately, my uncle decided to take me uh, to a football match of Apoel Jerusalem, right. uh, which is uh, maybe the most unsuccessful club in the <laughs> Middle East. <laughs> um, you got your allegiances in early, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, first match, I was four year old, I think, right. four years old. Um, I, of course, a loss, uh, but I I I learned I studied in a mixed school. Right. Who brought all the populations from the city together. Right. Oh, so not. So I thought you meant mixes in gender, but you mean mixed as in like yeah, yeah, yeah. background, uh, religious, right. secular, Jews, not Jews, everyone. Uh, so somehow I was lucky not to be. I was basically the majority of kids were also Apollo Jerusalem fans, right? Yeah, because Apollo Jerusalem are, were much more identified with the red side of the city, uh, much more you know left wing uh, kind of a club. And that explains why they're always losing, then, doesn't it? Yeah, what a shame. It's in the mm. genes. Yes, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so it was it was nice you know I I grew up playing football and uh, getting to know really all kind of kids and people from all over the city it was hard as a poor Jerusalem fan because back then Beitau was the most successful team and they won many titles and they were literally the club of the country Mm -hmm. every bus driver every taxi driver you could feel in the presence of this team and Apoel was the team of the simple people of the butcher of the of the you know the the bakery the bakery shop what were your parents doing? Uh, my father is a painter mm-hmm. and my mother was a teacher my right. father basically uh, left Israel when I was very young so basically I grew up in my mother in Katamon which is a very typical Jeru- West Jerusalem neighborhood mm-hmm. uh, you know, we weren't rich, but uh, never missed a thing. I had my ball and just, you know, playing from in school and then after school until 10 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the evening, coming back home, the same thing uh, again. What was your position? Um, try to guess. Well, you're not that tall, so you're not a goalkeeper. True. Uh, I would say maybe central midfield. 
Oh, when I lost my 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 speed, yeah, but uh, I was a right back. Okay, right yeah, back. Yeah, kind of right back and yeah. forward. Do you know what? I don't mean to be rude, but right, other than goalkeeper, right back is the position where they put the worst player. That's that's all I'm going to say. I've known several right backs in my time, and they're all they're the ones with the most uh, motivation to carry on playing. They really try hard, but if yeah. you end up at wing back, yeah, but I, I was no. I was more like you know uh, a right back that like attacks right and okay. uh, make the cross or okay. shoot from the shoot from the edge of the box I so like I was it. scoring pretty a Marcelo yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. exactly nice. Marcelo uh, a Dani Alves at times oh, you know okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah. this was this was the vibe uh, but yeah after I lost a little bit you know with age the speed so yeah midfield was yeah. very comfortable because I like to play with my heads up all the time right uh, do you play now? I try to play once a week of course okay. it's a must yeah. it kind of you know now modern modern life people look for yoga and stuff like this mm. i need the ball i prefer concrete though really the, yeah well yeah. is that because you grew up playing yeah, on concrete? yeah yeah wow i feel much more comf- comfortable on a five on five six on six in really? concrete than oh, uh, the falls though you must have torn your knees up yeah man i'm barely walking you don't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> had to help you in the door earlier yeah yeah well yeah. okay that's interesting yeah. yeah i miss it man i haven't played football for a very long time you don't you no. you must be a goalkeeper then i was a goalkeeper yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah just i wasn't any good i was just really tall but uh, i put in goal i only have one um footballing sort of celebration story which was when i was in primary school i would have been i don't know 7 8 years old something like that and it was uh, our school versus another school. It was the final of some kind of school cup. And the score was like 10-10 or something. Me and the other goalkeeper just let everything in. Came down to penalties. Everyone scored, obviously. So it was me and the other keeper who had to take a penalty. And he missed it. He skied it straight over the bar. So if I scored, we would have won the game. And I sort of ran up to it and I slipped over. And sort of accidentally miskicked it, but sent him the wrong way, and it pathetically dribbled in the other corner. Goal. Yeah, it was the only time the other boys at school ever talked to me. <laughs> I was a hero. I was a hero. I was here for about five minutes. I was a hero, and then I retired from football. Well, great since then. Yeah, it was. It was great, man. It was my own Cinderella story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, so recently you covered three major tournaments in the space of a year. True. Which ones? Tell us about that. Yeah, that's, so, a, lot, that's uh, a lot of work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a lot of work. Uh, of, and if you do it independently and look for clients for every tournament, it's that's a huge work. Yeah, headache. Uh, but I managed to, to make it somehow. I started in Russia in June 2018, the yep. World Cup, um, where I covered for seven different publications. Wow. Uh, the Middle Eastern Teams World Cup at the mm-hmm. beginning and then a few of them really liked my coverage and, you know, the way I see things. So I continue to cover Croatia and Russia and, uh, you Great. know, the, the underdogs who yeah. continued for the for the later stages. Yeah. Uh, was very interesting uh, experience. First of all, being in Russia mm-hmm. is was amazing you know I, I fought so many different things about this place before I arrived yeah and what was it what was it like tell us about your experience look I've, I heard about Russia you know that you are in the moment I will land there everybody will try or to rob me or to lie to me or to do something bad to me or to put something on my drink they or might try and dope you yeah you exactly faster, you know uh, because I, <laughs> I wasn't writing uh, fast enough the article <laughs> <laughs> um 
but basically I traveled all over the country yeah. for five weeks, six weeks. Basically, I came one week earlier because I want to see a little bit of the uh, how they make the preparation for the World Cups, the, for the World Cup uh, stadiums. Mm. It was very interesting. I think in the morning of the opening game in Moscow between Saudi Arabia and Russia, yeah. there were things that weren't ready. And I said to my colleague there, look, I'm here for a week. I think these people are not aware that 4.5 million people are about to enter their country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And basically it was the first time ever that Russia has opened its gates right. this way. Yeah. Um, I must say, during the tournament, it was an amazing experience and I met great people. And, you know, uh, there were times I was pinching myself. For example, Iran against Portugal. Yeah. A buzzing game uh, that I think, you know, made a huge, huge name for uh, Team Eli, the Iranian national team. Yeah. They made a great group stage, but again, Left, uh, left out of the knockout stage because they played with Morocco and Spain and Portugal. Uh, but they played great against two of the Europe's yeah. greatest teams, basically. They were great. But, you know, for me, as a, and I would say young writer for first time on a mission covering abroad, football abroad, you know, I came for Iran, but I found myself speaking 25 minutes with Cristiano Ronaldo in the mix zone. <laughs> and, you know, I, I went back to the hotel all buzzing from adrenaline yeah. and saying, my God, you know, this, my grandfather in Jerusalem, who's originally from Hebron, as I said, was insisting with me from a very young age, improve your Arabic, improve your Arabic, you must learn Arabic all the time. Sometimes, you know, punch me in the yeah. hand when I was speaking with a bad accent. And I think if he wasn't insisting on the Arabic with me, yeah. I wouldn't have this language with me. Yeah. And I wouldn't have the guts to use it and to search for Palestinian football writers mm -hmm. to develop this whole niche of Middle Eastern football in Hebrew or in English or whatever, and to go and cover the Middle Eastern team that were a record number of five in this World Cup mm -hmm. with Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Iran. And I wouldn't get to speak with Cristiano Ronaldo yeah. about his experience from the group stages, what he think about his opponents, what he think about Iran, what he think about, you know, and you can say a lot of things about football superstars. And, you know, the cliche on Ronaldo is he's so professional. But man, he is so professional. Mm. He's answering every journalist, no matter how much time. Everybody's there, all the Portugal team are in the bus. This mm. guy will speak with anyone in the room will answer a full answer to any of the question. Yeah. And I said, okay. So my grandfather insisted with me when I was seven years old. And now when I'm 28, I'm interviewing Cristiano Ronaldo. So, uh, is your granddad still alive? Yeah. 97. So you got to, you got to tell him then. About yeah, of course. Have you thanked him for yes. insisting that you've learned every Arabic? Friday I go and I, when I, when I, I try not every in the past years, it was <laughs> more, uh, I was more serious about it, but yeah. once in a while I go, I make him fish. You really like fish. Nice. So I make him fish. Yeah. yeah. 97. Wow. It's a grand yeah. old age. Yeah. It's a very typical Hebronite age. You know, it's like a hard people, you know, very <laughs> like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So but Russia the, was great. What, what were the other tournaments? So after Russia, I basically got the insect for, for covering football tournaments from ground because I was amazed by the options and the, and the access that you get as a journalist there. 
so I made plans to go to the UAE uh, in for the Asian Cup 2019. Yeah, and which Qatar won, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and it was fascinating. First of all, because um, someone who covered Middle Eastern football, it was literally not going to a Middle Eastern country which is has border with uh, Israel or Palestine. Mm. It was in Egypt, it was in Jordan, it was the UAE in the Gulf. Yeah. First time for me in the Gulf was very interesting. And I really, I watched there like the most climatic matches, uh, Jordan against Palestine, which is basically was a, a more of a family gathering where I also spoke with Mahmoud. I was very disappointed they lost and, and they left on the group stage. Uh, Iran-Iraq, mm-hmm. which is classical Asia. It's a yeah. huge match uh, in Dubai. A lot of, you know, full house. It's a small stadium, El Nasser Stadium, but 15,000 place, but the atmosphere was hectic. Yeah. And the fans were amazing. Uh, and also I spoke with some legends of Asian football, Yunus Mahmoud and Ali Dai and mm-hmm. Mandy Madivikia and all kinds of these names. Uh, and also Qatar, Saudi Arabia, in Abu Dhabi, in the middle of the Gulf crisis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Qatar there was winning 2-0 and uh, got a small uh, shower of shoes when what was like, you know, the Saudi fans threw shoes, yeah. shoes on them. What was kind of an introduction to what the Emirati fans will throw on them on the semi-final after they will crush them 4-0. Mm. Um, That's an amazing story as well, right? <sighs> yeah. Qatar is an amazing story. Mm. It's an amazing and uh, ambivalent and uh, controversial, yeah. but also an amazing football story. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's a, we, there I understand, I, first of all, I, I got the chance to speak with their coach, Felix Sanchez, a very interesting person, mm. a, a, a top professional again, and someone who's making a huge and unusual journey with his players. Something that I think in the, in world football is very rare. He's coaching these players. He's now coaching the, the Qatar national team, senior national team, but he's coaching these players from under 15. Yeah. Same players to under 16, under 18, under 19, under 20, under 21. Yeah. Now in the senior national team with the same players. It's Basically, a bit like the football version of the film Boyhood. Have you seen the film Boyhood? It's made by Richard Linklater and they started filming 12 years before they eventually released. So with the same cast, who the, and the protagonist, you know, he's must be 10 when they start filming. He's 21 by the time the film's released and they film wow. a day a year and, you know. Was it any good? No. <laughs> no, but you know what? People loved it. I was really disappointed. I didn't like it. But I like the idea that, you know, you could t- it's a good idea. And in fact, we've talked about this before, Alex and I, the idea of having a coach which sticks with a, with a, with a particular generation of players and moves through uh, and you have a kind of, um, I guess, a tractor system in a way. But, so I didn't realize that he'd done that. He's gone from, with the under 15s, 16s, all the way up to the senior squad. Yeah, he started his career as a coach in uh, La Masia right. of Barcelona. He's a Catalan. Uh-huh. So uh, he speaks very clean Spanish and, you know, very, very uh, impressive, has a very impressive presence. Yeah. And his team is also, like his team of professionals that goes with him in the tournament is very impressive in manners of uh, equipment and is very professional. Basically, this guy got the chance to nurture the first generation of Aspire footballer. Aspire is the academy that uh, Qatar founded in 2004 when when they started to understand that football is the path they want to take in order to 
That's the, that's the golden question, isn't it? In order to what? You want to ask it? I don't know. Yeah, in order to what? We'll come to that a bit later. Carry on the yeah. story, but I, I do want to ask you. So, so Felix Sanchez is basically uh, enjoying uh, a huge effort of uh, of investment in in footballers. Yeah, and basically managed to get these footballers together in something that I must say I've seen a lot of national teams going together, coming out from the dressing room for the mix zone. I've seen. Some of them, uh, I've watched the world champions, France, I watched Belgium, Brazil, Argentina with Lionel Messi. I watched all of them. I watched Nigeria and, uh, and Senegal with the songs and stuff. Okay. Qatar or Felix Sanchez are leaving the dressing room and walking through the mix zone like um, an SAS unit. <laughs> they are soldiers. Right. They are fully focused on a goal. Mm. They are not blinking. They maybe smile timidly, they maybe shake hand, answer a question or two quietly. Mm. Only the journalists that ask them can hear, and it's not like blah 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 blah, you know, uh, yeah. uh, like a gathering or something. Something very unique that I haven't seen, and I believe it also was also influenced by the fact that we were in the middle of a rife crisis, political crisis in the Gulf. Mm. Uh, and we were in the UAE, which is a country which is very much a, an ally of Saudi Arabia. Uh, so it's a, a clear side in this uh, conflict. So they were also extra shy mm -hmm. about it. But um, yeah, it was super, super uh, interesting to see this project mm. uh, reaching to, let's say, a first peak three years before this unbelievably controversial and weird idea of a World Cup in the Middle East in yeah. November yeah. 2022. <laughs> <laughs> so so it, was, it was great. And, uh, you know, I kept going with it. And I, in the summer, I went to cover AFCON 2019 in Egypt, uh, the latest stages. Yeah. Uh, it was very interesting. Also, uh, I was privileged to watch Algeria with Riyad Mahrez uh, uh, winning the tournament for the f second time ever, but the, f the, f the first time since 1990, mm. 28 years. And to see literally tens of thousands of Algerians celebrating in Cairo, uh, which is a very interesting and a tough place to be. Mm. Um, 20 million people city um, in a very, I would say, not simple time. Yeah, certainly not simple, is it? No. No. I took Has, out the phone. I while, took out yeah. the phone for photos and the policeman asked me to Re show him really? my phone. Yeah. What were you taking photos of? I was just in the market. Just like a tourist? Just like a tourist. Did, I mean, did they know you were a journalist? Were um, you just a random person to them? I think, uh, you know, in Egypt, you always had the feeling that somebody know or somebody is watching. Oh. Yeah. And they have a thing for foreign journalists and in a way they are between a very bad situation because, you know, the people are amazing. Yeah. The people are so nice mm -hmm. and uh, the culture is very accepting and very welcoming. Yeah. But the, the gap between the way the regime there is trying to preserve certain image you want for the outside and the 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 relation to foreign journalists and foreigners in general mm. uh, people that are really suffering uh, and i would say that uh, there is a lot of poverty that you see there 
uh, and it's you know colliding in a way of uh, unpleasant uh, experiences such as taking a photo in the street and a policeman asks you for your phone to erase these photos mm. something that I traveled uh, in many places but never happened to me Maybe there was something in the photo that you missed. You accidentally took a photo of some... Uh, yeah, maybe of, uh, of a mask or something uh, in the, the background. policeman's wife by accident, maybe. You know, who knows? Who knows? But uh, Egypt was also very interesting. And you know, I was... Again, I really, I really recommend if there are any aspiring young journalists mm-hmm. who want to get experience, to, have, uh, to, to experience something that they would... otherwise we'll never experience mm. and uh, to get access to world-class superstars for example uh, I interviewed Riyad Mahrez uh, after his 94 minute uh, free kick against Nigeria in the semi-final yeah. and you know I, I, uh, I came there to the mix zone after there was no place uh, left in the con- press conference room because I really wanted to hear What uh, Jamal Belmadi and uh, Alusi say is go- are going to say, of course, with 250 journalists from Senegal and 350 journalists from <laughs> Algeria, there was no spot for, no a, for, for, uh, for a small Babagol uh, journalist. <laughs> But I went to the mix zone, you know, look, after you, you see such goal from the stadium, you understand, you know, your, your heart is beating so hard and the adrenaline is so high, you are just... remaining positive and optimistic about everything. Mm-hmm. So I went there and again there I see hundreds of journalists waiting on the exit of the first spot of, uh, of the mix and I said, eh, you know what, I will stand in the end. I will wait to see what's up, mm-hmm. who's coming down. And then after a few players came and there was a big mess, suddenly Riyad Mahrez is coming. And everybody's jumping, Riyad, 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 Riyad. <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 man, sorry, sorry. Like this. And then, you know, I just... I, I, I haven't imagined it will even stop. I just, mm. Riyad, maybe just a few words, you know, just for the record. And he was like, you know what, okay. <laughs> like this. So Are you saying it was just luck? There was no journalistic yeah, skill on your part? I think that I was, I was the first one to ask a question in English. Right, okay. Because all the questions were French right. or Arabic. Yeah. Riyadh is not speaking a very good uh, Arabic. Right. Um, so I was the first one to just speak English, not being too pushy, just right by the, yeah. uh, the, uh, exit, right? the exit. So at the moment you say, yeah, you know what, okay. I haven't made it to press the red button of the record and boom, <laughs> almost 300 journalists on me, on the signs, on Riyad Mahrez who yeah. fell on the floor and said, yeah. okay, okay, it's for everybody, for the people, for the kids. Uh, yeah. We have a final Friday. We see you all. Bye. <laughs> and he just got up and ran to the bus. Nice. But it was, it was, it was a nice story because we said, after it, one Algerian journalist told me, man, I, uh, Almost because of you, we almost injured uh, Riyad Mahrez before the final. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so really... That's a good story. Yeah, if, yeah. if there are aspiring journalists to listen to us, go to the Asian Cup. Yeah. Go to AFCON. Try your luck. You think it's easier to get access to those sorts of tournaments, presumably, yes. than the World Cup? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, work hard on the pre-production. Look for a good publication to support you going mm. there. Because, you know, it's a work eventually. It's a hard work. You yeah. are not sleeping for, for almost a month. Mm-hmm. But uh, you can get to speak with the best player in the world in their basically most natural and non, uh, I would say, 
uh, non-official in a way. Yeah, non-stage. Uh, non, right. Non-stage situation. Yeah. They are with the national team in Africa. So yeah. it's uh, an amazing experience mm. uh, whatsoever. Yeah. Can I, I mean, I, I feel a bit ashamed that we've spoken for over an hour and I haven't asked you about Qatar, the World Cup yet. Can we talk about that a little bit? You said yourself a moment ago, you know, you were talking about the Aspire Academy all of the work and all of the funding they've put into into football um, for for what for what I mean what's what's Say the take it. yeah so like what yeah why well how, why let's try it this way how do you see their effort and their investment I mean I see it as a kind of um, well there's a few different things one of them presumably would be with an eye to um, increasing and aiding the domestic economy, right? I mean, to put Qatar on the international map. Exactly. I think know, it, so I to kind of, I think particularly, uh, you know, if with the world facing an environmental emergency and crisis, I think it's also pretty clear to anyone with a brain that um, relying on natural gas or, or oil reserves or fossil fuels is not a long-term solution. And so following in line, presumably with what some of the other Gulf countries have done, Um, increasing tourism presumably is one of the ways of maintaining an economy. That's just one reason, though. That's just one, one part of it. What, what, do you, what do you think? How dare you turn this around and ask me a question? That's not how this podcast works, Eric. Really. <laughs> I did a good job, though, didn't I? Yeah, yeah, right. you did. Now you, you do a better job. Go on. I think that, you know, Qatar uh, has this big dream of becoming a first world country with the stamp, with the etiquette, With the approval of the West of the strongest countries in the world such as US UK and you know Europe and I think they see and they, they understood that through football you can declare or create a new status for your country for your people for your city for for your culture and For you your identity and you know they what we've seen in the beginning of the millennium of all the footballers who are joining the the league the eh, but it's too tough Anglebef Pep Guardiola Marcel Desai yeah it was only the beginning because it just took uh, Uri and Joe's eyes hey look this guy is playing in Qatar now there is like a And leave there. Yeah. Yeah, okay. But we haven't paid any attention more than that. Right. Didn't they? They had Maradona and Pele open the first Aspire Academy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Appearing together for the first time in a decade or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's big stuff. It's, it's, it's huge stuff. Yeah. And, but it wasn't only it. It was just the first, first among many steps they did. And uh, we talked about Aspire. An academy that, that there is no there is no other academy in the world with such facilities mm-hmm. with such a, I would say I would like to call it professional sources best coaches in the world probably are you know for for uh, youth and uh, developing players in the world are working there for years and they started this uh, plan of aspire equivalent to the time that they started bringing high profile old players to play there mm-hmm. because they While they are att- attaining the, the attention for PR or just for changing a little bit the image on what's going on in football there, they were also doing massive work of grassroots that was combined also of course with professional work, but also with scouting, mm-hmm. scouting all over 
the world. Yeah. Um, you know, something that is uh, also quite controversial that we see in, in, the, in, the, in the latest Asian Cup, there was a huge problem with that. that Many four players from the starting lineup, the regular lineup throughout the tournament were guys who weren't even lived, like, lived, uh, weren't born there and their uh, Qatari identity were put in a question mark. Basam El-Rawi, one of the best players in the tournament, is yeah. 100% Iraqi without any Qatari documentation except oh. his passport with no traces to where, how he got his passport. Sure. Although, you know, Switzerland have been doing it for years. Exactly. Well. And here are we getting to the point because Qatar is suffering from this massive investment in football in many ways. Uh, there seem to be, you know, a sign for ruining the football that as we know it with a World Cup that's going on in the winter. And we know, uh, I know uh, one, one of the people I'm maybe more appreciating the, in the industry, James, is a great cri- uh, critic of, of, the, of this World Cup and on this move of Qatar. But you know, for me, as I see it and I, I leave the region, I see it from another side that basically if you want to have a World Cup in the Middle East, mm-hmm. it cannot be in the summer. No, I, mean, no. I agree. I mean, personally... I don't, you know, there are lots of things that, uh, that distress me about the, the Qatar World Cup, but it being in the winter really isn't one of them. No. I mean, I, I, I think that the Premier League's kind of um, disinterest in having a, a winter break is a bit ridiculous anyway. I like the idea of watching a World Cup around Christmas. I love how stacked out the football calendar is in, in, around Christmas in the UK anyway. So it's, exactly. I don't care. I, I can, you know, that's not what bothers, bothers me. Bothers you the, the the workers that they died building the new stadiums. Sure, I mean that's that's one of the things. Yeah, yeah. of course. I mean, that's, that's you are bothered, the main thing. Yeah, the main thing. Yeah. You are bothered also by the bribe that has been paid to host it. But then you know, and, and again, I for the second time here today, I need to highlight the fact that I'm not supporting the death oh. of workers. Sure, but I do understand that. Look, hosting a World Cup even before it arrived Qatar, has a price. Nowadays, with the, info, the internet and information, uh, we know the price, what it is to have a World Cup in a place who has no, no infrastructure to host it. Mm-hmm. And about bribe, man, we know today that half of the football was sure. corrupted I would say also, but just personally, that that bothers me not that much not either. That I mean, much. I think, you know, uh, the subsequent investigation showed that pretty much everyone was involved in this. If anything, the corruption, uh, the corruption at the heart of this whole situation was FIFA anyway, you know. That bothers me less. The, 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 the crisis with the migrant worker situation, which is not something that, that started with the World Cup, we should make clear, is, is what bothers me. Um, and I've had this conversation with, with James. I've had this conversation. It was a wonderful, I, I listened to this. It was a great... Uh, Thanks, man. Yeah, yeah. Also with chapter. David Goldblatt, which was really interesting. Uh, we talked about this too. And I think my, my opinion sort of shifts on this. But I think one way of looking at it certainly is that hosting an international event like this and the eye of uh, the world's journalists suddenly being on uh, Qatar and exposing um, institutions such as you know the kafala system and obviously the horrific working conditions of migrant workers who are building the stadiums directly involved in building the World Cup. 
that was happening before the World Cup was going to be hosted in Qatar. And if the World Cup wasn't being hosted in Qatar, we wouldn't be talking about it in the same way that we are. So obviously you are not supporting the deaths of migrant workers, nor am I. And it's an incredibly complex situation. As I said, my opinion shifts on it all the time. Some mornings I'll wake up and say, this is totally unacceptable. You can't have it. You know, you shouldn't be allowed to host it. That's not fair. And the other mornings I wake up and think, maybe this is the way, you know, and of course Qatar have, have made moves in recent years to try and reform the kafala system or abolish the kafala system or change the way that working conditions are um, are for migrant workers. And a lot of it is talk. I think we know that there hasn't been a, hu- a great deal of action. They would say that these things take time. That's also true. Um, I think I think you t- touched the, the most important point here. I think what we where we started our conversation today football can be used as a bridge in many cases as well in horrific cases like such as the the migrant workers uh, rights in Qatar yeah and if this what will bring the change to their uh, constitutional uh, constitutional uh, uh, construction law so it's a first step in the right direction yeah The price is unacceptable is, 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 uh, you cannot think of it, but it is what it is, because we live in a world where there are different cultures and, and things that are not in the same level everywhere. So I do believe that you know we need to judge this event without forgetting what is taking place in this country, mm-hmm. but we need to understand that if we want also to help a country change. Or if we want a, 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 this type of culture and, 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 and phenomena uh, to change and to stop, it's also a, a way of doing it. Yeah. And we cannot remain indifferent to the fact that basically, okay, it's not our responsibility, it's not football role to save Qatar from its own uh, twisted uh, uh, migrant workers' uh, uh, policies. But if it, ma- if it managed to change it, then we already won one battle. Mm-hmm. This is the way I want to look at it. And I think that the uh, World Cup in the Middle East has a, has a huge potential to i- have a huge impact on the whole region. And you know, we have great food and we have great people and we have great culture and music. And I think that w- one thing as a Middle Eastern people, a person that I feel sorry for that We will always be viewed for the conflicts that we have. Mm-hmm. We are in the most stressful area in the world for years. We grew up in stress environment. We go to university in a stressful environment. All the time it's either war or a crisis or a financial blockade or a BDS or racism mm-hmm. or all this. And you know, I think a World Cup. In, in the Middle East is a huge, huge, huge chance and option to change the image, to force the region to change in these exact points that it must change. Mm-hmm. It must go, you know, in a certain direction that a lot of things in the region do change in this direction already, but they need this push. I think the potential for this World Cup for us, the Middle Easterners, Israelis, Palestinians, Qataris, Saudis is unbelievable. Mm. And I think not seeing this as, as also a main case about this World Cup is not seeing the full picture. Mm. 
you know, horrible things are there and it's, you can never justify death of, of, uh, of people for, for eventually entertainment and sports. Mm-hmm. But uh, this event has the potential to change the fortune of this region because maybe people will understand that good things such as sports, such as worldwide uh, events can be profitable in this region. And maybe we can have a tournament also uh, in Israel and maybe it will help uh, To bring a solution between Israel and Palestine, a, a, a solution that will be, you know, a, a profitable and, and, and uh, I'm looking for this word that um, a solution that will... Works for everyone, do you mean? Yeah, but also, you know, it's something that relieving, make everybody believe and feel relieved. Right. Because we are in a constant battle, each country and each nation. A little bit of respite. Exactly. Mm. We need it. Look in Lebanon. Look in Iraq. Look, of course, in Palestine all, all the time. And even in Israel, so many inner conflicts that are not even being discussed in, 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 in the West. Mm. So I think this World Cup is a huge chance for us also to show that we can and also to create new options for the future. And, you know, If it wasn't clear until now, I'm a big believer of the football religion. Mm. So uh, I really hope that this World Cup will have a great impact on the region. Mm. Hey, man. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, like thanks, it. thanks, yeah, thanks, thanks. Thanks so much for coming, man. We've talked, we've talked for a really long time now. This is a long podcast, but I feel like we could go on for a whole week. We do. Yuri? We do. Will you tell people where they can read your stuff? Yes. Uh, so you are all invited to Babagol, yeah. www.babagol.net. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We'll pop some links in the description as yeah, well. Yeah, and, um, you know, from the Middle East to Africa to Latin America, we are there. Uh, also, you are most welcome to watch both great videos we did with Tifo Football and hopefully we'll do more in the future yeah um, I'll link those two and I'll also link to um, when Friday comes James Montague but he's going to get course. some free advertising he's got of loads of it on here see how big but, James is he's yeah. not here but he's with us here in the <laughs> you know I was just can I finish on uh, I think it's, it's I like the idea of, of uh, sort of positive and realistic news stories um, coming from places in the world where They tend to only be negative. And that's one of the reasons why I love When Friday Comes because I always remember the chapter on Iran when he's talking about uh, young people in, in Tehran who are, I can't remember the name of the game, but where they one car full of girls and one car full of boys drives up and down the street and they sort of look, each, look at each other out the windows. They're all taking drugs because there's no drinking and uh, they're all copping off with it's each other. Are you running the World Cup or it's a... It wasn't it, the World ah, Cup, it was just, it was a kind of... Esteglan Persepolis, the derby of, uh, of Tehran maybe. It might, I can't remember which football game it came before, but he was just talking about yeah, what, the, yeah. what the kids are doing because there's no, because there's no drinking. And I recognized it um, as what I was doing when I was a teenager and what people I know in America are doing when they were teenagers. And it's just the same fucking thing. It's just, you know, in a different place, kind of uh, shrouded by... Yeah. If you don't give people alcohol, they're going to take drugs and they're going to have sex with each other. And every, people are doing that everywhere. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a great way of empathizing with the rest of the world. Yeah, so yeah. the message of this podcast has been take drugs and uh, proliferate. <laughs> have, have a lot of... No, don't do that. That's, that's, uh, do what you want. 
do what you want. But um, I like the idea that you can empathize with people wherever they are. And football is the perfect, I say, tool for understanding people. Yeah, yeah. Look at the last international break. Uh, we sent reporters to cover Palestinian uh, national team against Saudi Arabia for the first time ever in the West Bank. Mm. And on the same day, we had a reporter in Beersheba covering Israel uh, national team and its Austrian coach, Andy Herzog, against Austria. Yeah. On the same day, same platform, you know, do football, don't do drugs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Uri Levy. Uh, oh, I'm so sorry I said your name wrong. No, Uri okay. Levy. Uri Levy, yeah. Uri Levy. Uh, Baba Gold, check it out. Links in the description. Thanks so much, man. I hope you'll come back again and we're, yeah, we, can, yeah, yeah. we can do this all over it's again. It's only the beginning, Joe. It's only the beginning. Good, all right. Thank you so much. And we'll be back next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.